0: Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary The Third Angel's Message in Verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. That is one large pipe for the Lord. (laughs) We're told that the monks and the priests in the Middle Ages used to regale their congregations with endless tales of miracles. And the credulity of the people back then must have been phenomenal in order for them to put up with all of those stories. And surely people today who are living in a scientific enlightened age such as ours shouldn't be so obsessed with the paranormal. And yet the popular press and the weekly uh, dailies carry tales of miracles, the media carries tales of miracles and the faithful devotees of electronic religion feed on a never-ending diet of miracles. And these are recounted for the purpose of validating the programs and their heavenly credentials. You know, you just look at a glance at the television schedules, and it reveals just a partial listing of these religious stars whose messages and methods in, uh, vary degrees with appeals based on miracles. Roman Catholics have long appealed to miracles as proof that they are God's true church. There's a reference to it in the book Great Controversy, page 172. There have been a host of saints who have enjoyed the distinction of miracles, of levitation, such as Loyola, Joseph of Cupertino, James Illyrica, Dunstan, Cajetan, Bernard of Clairvaux, one authority lists about 72 who have done the miracle of levitation. A French physician lists 312 cases of stigmata up to the end of the 19th century. Cases are reported even today. A widely publicized photo shows Padre Pio of Italy with his stigmata. Bilocation is another miracle that catholics revel in stories about abound about statues of the virgin mary that are bleeding or weeping manifestations of the virgin are claimed to occur all over shrines of healing at lords istanbul knock ireland all of these continue to draw large crowds So you don't have to go to these distant shrines to witness miracles of healing. Just watch your television. You'll see people throw away their crutches. You'll see the lame walk. You'll even see shriveled limbs straightened out and lengthened before your very eyes. And another very common form of miracle is glossolalia, talking or speaking in tongues, a supposedly fresh manifestation of the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Experience has shown that very seldom does anyone who has been immersed in this kind of miracle come to a wholehearted acceptance of the Seventh-day Adventist message. Spiritism's miracles often defy rational explanation. While undoubtedly there is some trickery involved and sleight of hand sometimes present, Common sense requires us to recognize that undeniable wonders do occur, and anyone who believes the Bible has to recognize that Satan's agents have power to do wonders. We look at Revelation 13 and verse 14, which tells us that the beast has the power to deceive them that dwell on the earth by means of miracles. And in Revelation 16, verse 14, we are told that it is the spirits of devils working miracles that go forth in the last days to assemble the kings of the earth for the battle of Armageddon. Satan and his minions can perform miracles, undeniable ones. The complete fulfillment of these ominous prophecies of Revelation 13 and Revelation 16 are still ahead, still future. It is going to require some discernment on the part of God's people, some real discernment. And whether the source of these miracles will be Catholicism or the Eastern religions or spiritualism or from Protestantism, we have to meet the challenge of these modern religious miracles. We have to know for sure what is their true source or we will fall victim. We read from the pen of inspiration these words, wonderful scenes with which Satan will closely be connected will soon take place. God's word declares that Satan will work miracles these works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. Obviously, Satan is learning in his wiles. He has gone high-tech, and that's not news. He's always been up-to-date with every age, but he is high-tech today. And the technology is not itself satanic, but the devils use it in deception. Revelation 16, verse 14 says that the spirit of devils working miracles go forth unto the whole world to gather the world to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. It's scary. And when you think of Satan's power to be manifested in these last days, this is right upon us. It calls for some discernment. But wait a minute. Is there some good news also? Yes, because when Satan's power is manifested, the Holy Spirit of God will manifest an even greater power to reach hearts. And so please remember that Satan is not stronger than God but it will be a message from God that will demonstrate that where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. But how can we proclaim such a gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, that is more powerful than the message of Satan, unless we understand it, unless we can articulate it? And how can we understand it as long as, as we feel rich and increased with goods in our present understanding of it. It's time for some very serious thinking. It's time for some very serious study. It's time for a humbling of the hearts of God's people. Have you ever wondered why God apparently doesn't intervene? to heal more sick people miraculously. Medical science does heal many. But does that mean that the great physician has virtually abdicated his healing role and given it over to the medical profession? Could there be a different circumstance today than there was 2,000 years ago when Christ and his apostles did heal the sick? and cleansed the lepers, and gave sight to the blind, and yes, even raised the dead. Well, we know that in the days of Christ and the early apostles that the message of the cross was more vividly proclaimed than it is today. And it resulted in a deeper and more thorough conversion. And it made it safer for the Lord to work these miracles because the healed persons would thenceforth be constrained to live unto God who died for them and rose again and not take the glory to themselves. Today, a wise writer reminds us, quote, that often some form of vice is the cause of feebleness of mind or both. And should these persons gain the blessing of health, many of them would continue to pursue the same course of heedless transgression of God's natural and spiritual laws. That's ministry of healing, page 227. In other words, why bother pumping up a tire that has holes in it? If a person is committed to transgressing God's principles and wants a miracle, why should you pump it up when it has holes in it? Nevertheless, we know Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, which means that he is still compassionate, even to the erring. And he doesn't like to see people suffer. For he suffers with them and for them. And therefore, we can only conclude that the most important ministry of healing is proclaiming the only message that can reconcile alienated hearts to God. And the genuine gospel of his grace, unmixed with any elements of legalism or Babylonian confusion, is what people need today. We're told that the final work, in Great Controversy, page 612, the final work, miracles will be wrought and the sick will be healed. And that must mean that in that same final work, the pure, true gospel will again be recovered and it will be proclaimed. And the everlasting gospel is such good news that we sinful human beings have a difficult time believing how good it is. In fact, when Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, he's trying to tell us that our main problem, our main problem is learning how to believe it. That's our big problem. Just like ancient Israel couldn't enter into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. Their biggest problem was learning how to believe the good news. You can read about it over and over there in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And Jesus speaks to all of us when he told that distraught father, you remember, whose child was devil-possessed in Mark 9, 23, if thou canst believe, all things are what? Possible to him that believeth. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And then a few minutes later... He had to tell the disciples why they couldn't cast out the devil in the child. He said to them, because of your unbelief. He had already told the multitudes that had gathered to watch that they were faithless, which means they didn't have it. And then he added that their unbelief was associated with perversity. And that means, of course, that unbelief, I'll tell you, is very serious business. Unbelief is very serious business. Now, this is a very dangerous subject, for fanaticism just seems to be lurking around the corner. And we so easily think that if we just had the proper faith that we could work miracles that we could speak in tongues, that we could pick up poisonous snakes and not have them bite us, that we could move mountains like Everest, that we could ride around in a new Rolls Royce. But to be content to live in a humble home and endure pain and poverty and rejection and drive an old Honda Civic, or maybe ride a bicycle, that, dear friends, is not necessarily unbelief. There are millions of Christians around the world that like to study the topic of assurance of salvation. They want to improve their spiritual stability in Christ and in God's church, and members who are living in a constant uncertainty about whether God has accepted them, can hardly exhibit uh, the joy and the confidence that the gospel teaches. And out of the millions and billions of people in Babylon, who wants to step out and join a fellowship that apparently lacks that joyous assurance of salvation? Who wants it? Who can have and how does one attain that genuine assurance? Well, Jesus takes some pains to warn us. You've got to read this. Go to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 22. Jesus takes the pains to warn us about a false assurance. It's about people who are seeking assurance of salvation. He says, many will say to me in that day, that's the judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? The emphasis is upon who? Us. Have we not prophesied in thy name? can the Lord really operate and perform true miracles for people who say, we have done this. Have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful miracles. This is our assurance of salvation because you have done these miracles, we have done them. And then, what a shocker, what a shocker will I profess unto them, I never knew you. This is what happens for people who are so insecure, they're seeking for assurance of salvation by evidences. I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, that sounds a bit scary. These people profess to believe, John three sixteen. After all, they called him Lord, Lord. They had evidences for their assurance of salvation, for they worked miracles in his name. Their confidence in their assurance held them firm right up to the final scenes of the judgment. But their awakening to reality came to light on the day of judgment. They had not known the true Christ at all. The one they thought they knew was the false Christ. The one they thought they knew was the false Christ. And everywhere, everywhere in the Scriptures, dear friends, it says that God is going to hold accountable those pastors and those shepherds, and those evangelists, and those preachers, and those writers who mislead them with teachings of false assurance and guided them to their eternal ruin. You can read it in Jeremiah chapter 23. Who has the moral right to a genuine assurance? Well, if you look in the next verse there, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus answers, who has the moral right to a genuine assurance? Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And Jesus' very powerful parable there in Matthew chapter 25 Makes quite clear that those in the final day who are so cocksure of themselves will be disappointed, while those who sense a humble and unworthy spirit will be happy. The same truth is underscored in Christ's final message to his church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 he says that he feels like vomiting because of the cocksure, proud, and arrogant spirit of those who assume that they are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But they don't know their true, prophetic spiritual condition. Is there good news? Yes. For in a humble heart, the humble heart Only those who feel hungry can be fed. And yes, they will surely be fed. Genuine healthy faith. Genuine healthy faith is a willing and happy to share with Jesus. A genuine and happy and healthy, humble faith is one who is willing to share with Jesus his humiliation and his suffering. And if you haven't succeeded in reducing a Mount Everest to the level of the desert, that doesn't mean that you necessarily lack faith. If you do work miracles and cast out devils and prophesy in Christ's name and move mountains and do all the wonderful kinds of works, you may still be faithless in that you have no genuine faith. Satan is a genius. Satan is a genius in deceiving the whole world with signs and wonders. Read it. Matthew 24, 24. Revelation 13, verse 3. So what is that genuine faith? What is that true believing? It's comprehending the grand dimensions of the love that led Christ to the cross for you. Identifying with Him there, getting married to Him because you want nothing else than to share with His sufferings and humiliation. Taking up your cross, following the Lamb, whithersoever He goeth. That's true faith you see why unbelief then is the sin of all sins? Do you see? It's the only reason why anyone will not enter into heaven. Why? Because if he didn't enter in to the humiliation and the sufferings of Christ, he would be miserable in heaven. He'd be miserable there. When there were some Greeks from Gentiles from Greece who invited Jesus Probably they said, why don't you come and preach the gospel in Athens? Jesus responded in John chapter 12 and verses 20 through 24. He responded with memorable words. He talked about a grain of wheat falling into the ground. Unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it can produce no fruit. It it will bear much fruit if it is tossed into the ground. And so, One of the lessons here is that the great temptation for Jesus was why don't you go with these guys and get out of the church? You know, just get out of here. They're the ones that are giving you the problems. They're going to crucify you. Why don't you just disfellowship yourself and get out of the church? Was that the answer for Jesus? To go to Athens and get out? He stayed in the church where the persecution was. He stayed right there. He must set his face steadfastly to suffer in Jerusalem to die there for the world. And he made a great big promise in John chapter 12 in verses 31 and 32. He said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. He was talking about his cross, wasn't he? And that big if, and that universal promise of drawing all will meet its fulfillment in prophecy in Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, where another angel will finally come down from heaven having great power. That is the drawing that will be Some people who see the cross and appreciate it and they lift up Christ on His cross before the world, that will be the fulfillment of that prophecy. They have identified with Christ in His humiliation and in His sufferings, and they're not in it for the miracles, to claim its glory and to broadcast that throughout every world, to get credit to themselves. Their only glory is in the message of the cross, which lightens the earth with its glory. In other words, to draw all doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to win all. They're not necessarily going to win everybody. All will sense He has been drawn by that message of love, but not all will respond favorably not all. Many will resist it. They'll reject it. Precious ones, however, are to be called forth from Babylon. Babylon is fallen and is fallen. Come out of her, my people. Precious ones will come out of Babylon by that drawing power of the love of Christ's cross. A compelling power will move the honest in heart, and God will bring a restraint upon unbelieving relatives and friends so that they will dare not nor find it possible to hinder those who feel the work of the Spirit of God upon them. They won't be ashamed anymore to come out and say, I believe in the message of the cross. Identify with Him and His crucifixion. And so the last call will be carried out even to the most downtrodden of humanities, and signs and wonders will follow those believers. God will be in the work. Every saint, fearless of consequences, will follow the convictions of their own conscience. The gospel message will close with power and strength. Servants of God will be endowed with power from on high to declare the message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and souls that are scattered everywhere will answer the call but it will only happen when the cross is prominent. What will give power to that message? Lifting Christ and Him crucified in a clearer way than any movie could portray it, any play acting on the stage or any pictures could do. Why hasn't Revelation 18 yet been fulfilled? We can't lift up Christ while we also lift up self, uncrucified. But the Holy Spirit will solve that problem. It's prophesied in Zechariah 12 and, and chapter, verses 10 through chapter 11, verse 1. So there is a lot of good news before us yet. The Holy Spirit can solve this uncrucified self of ours. What do you think of these modern faith healing movements? Well, there are people who claim to have been given the so-called gift of healing so that they can lay hands on the sick and they can recover. And these undeniable miracles are claimed. Is faith an important element in healing? The Bible says absolutely yes. But we need to understand what faith is because the Bible says that the devils believe. The devils have faith and they tremble. James chapter 2 and verse 19. And so I want to leave you with this little story of the Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7 verses 2 through 10 that may help us to understand. This Gentile military officer believed that Jesus could just say the word and his mortally sick servant would be healed. And Jesus marveled at this he marveled and he said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, what was that faith? Well, it was the belief that Jesus had the power to heal by simply saying a word. And if you say yes, then you're going to get yourself into trouble because the devils also believe that Jesus can heal by just saying a word. Such confidence comes short of a true definition of faith if the devils also have it. But as we read the story in its context, we begin to see that the Roman soldier's faith was more than just that Jesus could say a word and heal the man. Because this Roman soldier had begun to understand his sinfulness in the light of Christ's righteousness. For he said two things. He said, I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof, and neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Now I'll tell you, the devils don't have any sense of their unworthiness. the devils don't have any sense of their unworthiness. They have no feelings of humility and they have no sense of God's grace. And so the centurion's faith was not a mere mental trust. Oh, I believe that Jesus can speak a word and heal. It was more than that. The centurion's heart was a heart appreciation, a humble appreciation. An unusual love had filled this Roman soldier's heart because he was very concerned for his servant, his slave. He was more concerned for his slave than he was for himself. The faith he had already had transformed him and delivered him from selfishness. I'll tell you, that's not the experience of the devils, correct? So this centurion had a faith that went far beyond the devil's faith. This story, I think, does help us understand the the essential ingredient of all true miracle healing, that faith is a heart appreciation of the sacrifice of Christ. And maybe it's right there that we don't see so many miracles happening in the midst of the church. There's a lot of uncrucified self in the church. And as soon as I say that, I realize anew how weak and how childish my little faith is and how much I need to grow. I wonder, do you realize it too? The greatest drought, the greatest drought that ever happened in Israel's ancient history prevailed during the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Do you remember that? There was no rain. There was not one drop of dew that fell upon the parched land for about three and a half years, and people were just dying everywhere. In consequence, it was a national disaster, and even the king took his trusted cabinet members aside, Obadiah, and with him they were just searching throughout the land for some spots where the royal livestock could forage for a little water and grass in order to survive, because our whole national security depended upon it. You can read about it in 1 Kings 18, verse 5. It was equivalent to the national security crisis if our supplies of gasoline and diesel were to become non-existent. And likewise, a crisis faces the Lord's church in the last days. If there is no rain of the Holy Spirit falling upon it worldwide, In copious showers of grace, the church is facing a crisis. And as many Israelites died in Ahab's days of drought, so many in modern Israel are suffering and they are lacking heaven's true showers of rain. And they fall prey to the clever counterfeits that the enemy in the great controversy with Christ foists upon them because they lack any discernment whatsoever. Our youth and our teens are especially vulnerable, and they are perishing spiritually if they are deprived of this fresh uh, bread of life, because every wind of doctrine is just blowing around, and they're swept away by it. By the way, it's not just youth, it's adults too. Jesus' words are, if anyone says to you, lo, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and shall show you great signs and wonders as verification of their gospel so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus says, see, I have told you beforehand. We need that kind of common sense, don't we? Or we're going to make fools out of ourselves. Most perilous of these deceptions will be the clever invention of a false and counterfeit Holy Spirit. The truth makes sense. If, if Satan can invent a false Christ, he can also invent a false Holy Spirit. And in the time of the end, knowledge shall be increased. And we need that increased knowledge. And if we can conceive of a progression of deceptions, like the devil is progressing in his knowledge of deception, each generation witnessing a new development of deceptions. In the 19th century, an inspired writer said there was an alpha of deception that was manifested in pantheism in our midst, that was unfolding, just imagine what the almost overwhelming impact is going to be of an omega deception upon his people. Well, in Ahab's day, a true prophet of God named Elijah arose, and he commanded the king to call a national crisis convocation at Carmel. The universal deception was unmasked publicly, Every Israelite with an honest heart was undeceived on Mount Carmel, and at last the true Holy Spirit had a voice. And the next item on God's agenda for today is for his sending Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will lead the honest in the world church into the one true miracle of His much more abounding grace, which is the turning of hearts in this great day of atonement. By the way, for Jesus to reconcile alienated hearts in this cosmic day of atonement is the greatest miracle of the cross. And at last, Christ, crucified and risen, will be lifted up. As He said, He must be. So we can only conclude that the most important ministry of healing is proclaiming the only message that can reconcile alienated hearts to God. The genuine gospel of His grace, unmixed with any element of legalism or Babylonian confusion, we are told that in the final work in Great Controversy, page 612, miracles will be wrought and the sick will be healed. And that must mean that in the same final work, the pure, true gospel will again be recovered and it will be proclaimed. And if the Lord can give us the grace to be humble in heart today, then we can begin at least to recover that blessing. And that will be good news.
1: Let us stand and open up our hymn books to number 195. Showers of blessings one nine five. Realness or falling, but for the showers we plead, there shall be showers.
0: message of the cross of Jesus, his great humiliation and suffering, is speaking to every human heart. And in this room, it is speaking to my heart and to every heart. There's not one that is excluded from this call. All of us are tempted to feel rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And the message for me, for us, is to identify with Jesus' humiliation and his suffering and let that faith of Jesus, which overcame, that pathetic spirit of Laodiceanism, have its way. Where sin abound, let the grace much more abound. I have sinned. We have sinned. Our only hope is the glory of the cross. It's the only way home. The only way to prepare for Jesus' coming. It is the true cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. It is the reconciliation of our old stubborn hearts to God won by his great love. In his name we pray. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.